How's it going, everyone? Welcome back to the Creative Collision Podcast. On this episode, I'm going to recap the the last two episodes of the the Last Dance documentary, episodes nine and ten, um, the finale of uh, of uh, the Last Dance, and talk about my overall thoughts of the whole docu series now that it's finished. And then I'm going to continue my series in the second part of my top ten players per position. Today, I'm going to talk about. Um, I'm going to break down my list of my top 10 power forwards of all time. Okay. So just begin with the, the last dance, uh, final two shows this past Sunday and, uh, nice. I mean, I like, it was just a overall great series and, and they did a really nice job wrapping it up. I feel like, um, we uh, we knew what was coming. At least if you already knew the story, you knew these last two episodes, those last two championships against the Jazz, the flu game um, from '97 was a big moment in those finals. So you know that was going to be a topic. And then uh, the '98, of course, we've all seen the image a million times. The final shot. Um, against uh, the Jazz, the crossover, the little push off of. Uh, Byron Russell in the shot so uh, we knew we knew we were going to get those moments in detail here uh, but there were also a few surprises stuff that I didn't know about that was uh, really cool to see so uh, we'll we'll begin with episode 9 um, in episode 9 um, we lead off with the um, the Pacer series and then we get a flashback of Michael Jordan and Reggie Miller's uh, fight earlier in their careers. I think it was 90, 93 when they fought, when they got into a fight. Um, so, no, we've seen that before. We've seen that um, that video before. But it was cool seeing uh, Michael's reaction um, of him um, saying, like, oh, don't, you know, let him go or let him go, you know, when they're holding Reggie back. So, uh, just... Again, it kind of shows the era of the '90s and how much more physical it was, and and uh, and how players are more willing to throw it down. You know, it was it was a you know, a lot of talking before the fighting. It was it's just like if you say something wrong or if somebody gets on your nerves for too long during the course of the game, uh, a fight can break out at like any moment. So. That's a, a precursor, basically, to um, the 98 Eastern Conference Finals, Bulls versus Jazz. So we we get the, the beginning of that series, and then it flashes back to, or it just goes back a year prior now to 97 against uh, the Jazz in 97. Um, and we, we, see the, we see how that series plays out, and then the flu game, of course, so... We get the backstory to the flu game, which has been called for uh, forever now. And it really wasn't a flu game. It was a, looks like a food poisoning game, which I'd heard that too, that it was more food poisoning than the flu. Um, and there's always a theory with every moment here, you know, the last episodes and um, I've talked about it here on the podcast that, uh, and me and Will talked about it too on our YouTube channel. Uh, we talked about the previous conspiracy theories where the dad getting murdered by the mafia. And then the other conspiracy theory is is uh, when he retired, he was uh, secretly suspended by David Stern. So this conspiracy theory was on the flu game. And that the theory is that he was hung over. He wasn't really sick. And I don't really believe that theory um, that much. It's not that I totally believe this whole pizza story this bad pizza food poisoning story. Um, but I don't believe it was a hungover situation because one thing we've seen from Michael in his docu documentary and just from stories we've heard even before then is that, you know, he's the type of person that could drink all night or he can, you know, he can go play golf, after, you know, play golf, you know, go to the casino, gamble till three in the morning you know, have have some drinks, smoke cigars, and still be ready to go the next day and drop 40 on you, right? He was one of those dudes 
that's just wired that way. I think we we all know somebody like that, somebody that can just like go all night and just never wants to sleep or doesn't need to sleep and is never tired and always has energy. Um, you know, like we all have that friend that wants to rage all night, wants to go out all night, and or and they were like, dude, it's three in the morning, and he's, you know, uh, he's the last one to pass out, and the first one to wake up, and Jordan doesn't seem like the type of dude that gets hung over, <laughs> like, he's just, he's wired differently, right, so that's why I don't really believe the, the theory that, you know, he was hung over, uh, he was bad, as we, as I call it, um, so, uh, I do believe it was some sort of food poisoning, um, and then I guess the what they left it out of the of the episode, but the director of the Last Dance, I'll pull up his name in a second because I do want to shout him out because he did such a great job on this whole series. Um, but I saw the director on ESPN after the episode ended, after the series ended, and they did like the after show on ESPN, and um, he talked about how uh, this is to Jalen Jacoby. He talked about that that Michael Jordan, this, the story that he also got was that Michael Jordan spit on the pizza. And that's why nobody else ate it. So um, that kind of, I can, yeah, I kind of believe that, that, you know, like that's why nobody else ate the pizza. Because at first it's like, okay, how are you going to order a whole pizza and then nobody else eats it? You know, when you're in a room full of other people and, and, uh, and, you know, usually you share a pizza, right? You don't just, you know, you don't have just one person eat it. But then when he said that Michael Jordan spit on it and his name is Jason, Jason Harris. So, uh, just want to give him a shout out for directing this docuseries and he, you know, he did a great job and, uh, you know, with it being pushed up too, like this was supposed to come out in June. So for him to to speed up his process and uh, do it at this time and, and still deliver um, this content the way he was able to deliver it. It's, it's really impressive. So shout out to him um, for doing that. So for, for his work on this. Um, but yeah, he said that, that Jordan spit on it. So nobody else would eat it because um, they went to dinner. It was Jordan, Tim Grover and whoever else was, was there was some, um, the story is that, they all went to dinner before then, and and they didn't wait on Jordan, and I guess Tim Grover and everybody else there had their dinner, ordered their dinner before Jordan got there, so Jordan didn't get to eat, and then that's why he was so hungry at, at night in the hotel room, and they ordered a pizza because he was so hungry, so, so because he was so hungry and because he was trying to get them back for earlier in the night when they didn't wait for him to eat, he's like, all right, this is my pizza. I'm going to spit on this so nobody else eats it. <laughs> so maybe he made himself sick. I don't know. You know, he ate on a, a pizza that he spit in. Um, um, so it, I think definitely in the documentary, that was something they kind of, <clears throat> there's definitely some details left out. I, I got that feeling watching it. There were some, some details left out. I think it was partially true, but there were some some details out of missing out. Like Jordan spitting on the pizza would have been a nice detail to have in the documentary. Maybe Jordan didn't want that in there. Who knows? But or maybe he just didn't. He didn't say that. It came from somebody else. So that's why he didn't put it in there. But there was definitely some details missing um, in that in that story. So not totally hundred percent believable, but. Um, I don't believe the, the hungover theory at all either. So, uh, he definitely looked like he was sick. Um, and, and he came out and, and, uh, dropped 38 game five, the 97 finals. Um, hits a big three at the end, uh, that clinches the game and they go up three, two with a pivotal game. They go up three, two and, uh, they finish it off in six. <clears throat> So we get those 97 finals and then we, we get, uh, I think it was in that same episode where we get Steve Kerr's backstory, which was, uh, really cool, really 
something that I didn't expect and and uh, something I didn't know about at all. Uh, I've never heard of Steve Kerr's backstory and his. I didn't know his dad was murdered. His dad was killed. Um, so that was that was a pretty pretty deep moment there. Got a little teary eyed watching that. It was definitely like pretty sad, and and I really felt for Steve Kerr uh, as you know this underdog that wasn't highly recruited. Um, like he had that joke about himself. He he got as much attention from colleges as girls gave him in high school. Like, and uh, and you know he had to work to get everywhere he needed in in his NBA career. You know he had to work for it. So uh, really inspiring. Really really nice to see that he's a he's a really likable guy, man. Steve Kerr is one of the most likable and like just seems like one of the most down to earth people to people in the NBA um and I could see you can see like how he translates the players so well and what makes him such a good coach as well because Steve Kerr kind of gets the same some of the same criticisms that Phil Jackson gets that you know he he's not that great of a coach he just has the best players on his team and of course you know Steve Kerr does have Steph Curry and he had he had Kevin Durant and Clay Thompson and all that and Draymond Green but you can tell that Steve Kerr learned from from his time as a player under Phil Jackson learning how to manage egos um and he you know he took what he learned from Phil Jackson and also Greg Popovich too when he became a spur and he kind of like got these great examples of great coaches and balanced it out so that translates very well over to his coaching career and and uh, I feel like he's somebody that players want to play for um and he's he's uh he's had a great career a great NBA career as a player and as a coach and uh he has some big shots he has some really big shots in those particularly those two finals against the Jazz in 97 and 98 he really comes through and has clutch moments so uh that was really surprising to see and really really uh cool that we got that story um you can tell it really was something that was hard for him to say and talk about um on the documentary when he was being interviewed that definitely something that still hits close to him so um that was yeah that was that was a, a key moment a cool moment in that episode that i didn't expect and then uh <clears throat> i think we get back to yeah, we get back to the Pacers series. Uh, we see how Reggie Miller thought he was going to retire Jordan, which was funny. And uh, apparently Reggie Miller's interview for... Well, he's, he, I heard him say this on the Dan Patrick show. Um, that Reggie Miller barely got interviewed for this. This was back in January or February of this year. Where he was interviewed for... His, you know, his part was interviewed for, the, for this uh, documentary. So... That's why you don't see Michael Jordan have a reaction to what Reggie Miller said, unlike other other um, players were like <clears throat> when Isaiah Thomas said something. You know, Jordan had a chance to rebuttal, or when Gary Payton said something, Jordan had a chance to rebuttal. Uh, by the time uh, uh, Jason, the director, got a chance to interview Reggie Miller, he already it was ready far late into the process where. He can't go back and get a reaction from Michael Jordan. All his his interview material with Michael was already completed. So I would have loved to see what Michael would have said, you know, watching uh, how how he's been doing in previous episodes, how he gives him the iPad and then shows him a, shows him a clip of another player saying something. And I would have loved to see Michael's reaction because his reactions have been like one of the best things on this whole documentary from the beginning, like... There's already like three or four memes of, of his reactions to things. Um, so seeing his reaction when Reggie Miller says, um, I wanted to retire Michael or, or I felt like my, he said, I felt like to this day, I still feel like our team was better. I would love to see what Michael's reaction would have been to that. Um, but Michael gives him, uh, nonetheless, he still gives the Pacers uh, credit. He gives them, you know, he actually gives them some respect says that 
they were the, the hardest challenge in that whole run. Um, and they are one of only two teams so that pushed the Bulls of seven in this whole uh, sixth championship title run. So I think the, the Knicks way back in 92, the 92 season took the Bulls to seven games. And then in, and then this series in 98, I guess the Pacers in the Eastern Conference Finals took them to seven games. So, so they're the only two times that during their title run, Jordan played in other game sevens before he started winning titles, like in, like against the Pistons and he had a or against the Cavs. It was a, it was the best of five back then, but when he hit that shot over Elo, uh, that was a, a game five um, end of series clinching you know shot right there. Um, but in their title runs from '91 to '98, he only played in the Bulls only got pushed to Game Seven twice in '92 and then in '98. And that Pacers team, um, they they had their chance for sure. I mean, that Game Seven was close. Um, I, I actually rewatched that whole game uh, recently on YouTube, uh, which has been fun. I've been during this documentary run, I've been going back and watching a lot of Michael Jordan games just in preparation for the podcast or just to, just to really, you know, get, just get that full. Cause you can see all the highlights and you get a glimpse, but you know, watching full games is, you know, you really get to see uh, the whole environment, how great he was and just the circumstances. And that 98 game seven, um, yeah, it was, it was close. And at the end, at the end there, uh, what I remember is just the Pacers starting to, I do think the Pacers probably were the better team, the deeper team, but the Bulls championship pedigree just started to like will them to victory because the Pacers started choking at the end. Uh, Mark Jackson had some bad turnovers. He threw the ball away. Reggie Miller basically disappeared in the second half. I don't think he made a shot in the fourth quarter. Um, of that game he had like 21 points by like the the beginning of the third quarter and then uh, you know I don't think he's really scored the rest of the game um, Kukoc was big in that game he had like a big third quarter I believe uh, so it was it's so just so different too if you a basketball fan and you go back and watch those full games from the 90s it's just so different it's so much slower the pace um those scores, man, they're like in the 70s and 80s. It's crazy how much slower the game was. And uh, I don't even know why. Uh, I know the league was more diluted because there was expansion teams. So you didn't have as many. Like the 80s had a lot of super teams, if you really think about it. People think super super teams were like a new phenomenon. You know, ever since LeBron went to Miami, like that was like the start of the super team. That was the start of like the free agency like uh, player empowerment era, like LeBron started that, but he didn't start super teams. There were super teams way before then. Um, the eighties was filled with them, the Lakers, the Celtics, the Sixers, um, you know, even like the Rockets and other teams there that had like two or three hall of famers at one time, a lot of those teams. And, um, and in the, the nineties, you had all uh, like six new teams came in during the 90s so you have the the players more spread out and because of that like all the good teams had maybe two all-stars and that was it you know if you were no like it was rare that there was a team that had more than two all-star caliber players and uh, I think that that's part of why scoring was lower but the pace, I know rules were a little different, hand checking and and though the NBA tried to do things to speed up the game or at least add more scoring, like they brought in the three point line for a couple years, right? But it's 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 so weird watching. It's like a totally different game back then. If you just go back and watch those games, um, it's still fun to watch though because it's it's more. You just feel it's more raw. You feel the fans. I don't know if it's just because I was watching like playoff games and fans are more in, more into it regardless. But it seemed like the fans were louder back then. Um, it seemed like uh, you can definitely like it was definitely more physical 
there's not those ticky tech fouls weren't called. You've got more physical physical play. Uh, but some of those games, man, they're they're brutal, for sure. Um, but uh, yeah, that they you see the Bulls overcome, um, beat the Pacers, and then advance to the finals, get back to the finals and meet the Jazz. And uh, I think that's basically everything that happens in episode nine. Then episode ten, we get the that last that last season, the '98 season. Um, we see how well we get that game three in '98, where the Jazz only scored 54 points. Again, it's the pace is so much slower. Bulls defense was amazing, but also the pace was so much slower. So the Jazz didn't give themselves enough opportunities to score enough. Um, yeah, watching those Jazz teams or watching that series, uh, the Jazz were just running the same plays over and over. Um, just basically all Carmelo or bust, man. So, so uh, yeah, it was definitely a different era for sure. Um, going back to that '97, I want to bring that up again, where Jordan's inspiration or motivation for that NBA Finals was Carmelo winning the MVP over him, just like how. Barkley won in ninety three over him, and then uh, and then ninety eight, um, Jordan got the MVP again in ninety eight, but you know, capping off that six ring, and uh, and of course, you know, the the clinching game in Game Six, him making that making that uh shot, or the last basically the last forty one seconds of that game, Jordan was the only Bulls player to touch the ball, so it's just such an iconic moment and uh and probably the most iconic shot in NBA history um that shot over that shot to win that game and and the pose and everything about it was so perfect it was such a storybook ending such a movie type of ending and uh yeah it was it's amazing to watch you know um when when like you know Scotty Pippen his back is hurt and it's basically just Jordan he scored 45 of the the Bulls points and the, that's more than half they only scored I think 80 they only scored 87 points I think in that game and Jordan scored 45 of them so he scored more than half of their points he's so tired he's exhausted and and just it goes back to what makes him the goat just finding that that inner inner strength and and wanting to win and just you're so tired your body's your body's just done but your mind is like telling you to you know keep going and and pushing through that and uh yeah you know that's still on karma alone you know no again phil jackson showing like what makes him a great coach as well a lot of coaches in that situation probably won't, would call a timeout but uh, Phil knew the moment. He knew it was better to to have the Jazz just kind of scramble and and try to get uh, their defense set. So Carmelone, the little Jazz Jazz were up three um, after a big John Stockton three. It's forty one seconds left. Uh, jazz or actually first, let's go back to the the layup that Jordan makes. So yeah, forty one seconds left. Jazz were up three. Uh, Bulls ball. Right out of timeout, Jordan just attacks. Quick, you know, quick move, hesitation move, couple dribbles, um, you know, makes a difficult layup. Uh, and it only takes like four seconds off the clock. So that's like the worst thing that could have happened to the Jazz. Quick score by Jordan. Only bull, only player to touch the ball in that position for the Bulls. Um, Jazz come back down the floor. They uh, they run the same you know the same play that they've been doing. You know, Carmelo in the post, and Jordan of course knows what play it is, and he reads it perfectly, and and he knows what Carmelo's gonna do. So as soon as Carmelo gets the ball, boom, Jordan never he never follows um, Jeff Hornacek, comes back to, to Malone, strips him from behind, blindsides him. Uh, 
steal. There it is. Jordan dribbles back down the floor. No timeout called by Phil. And uh, and he just waits for the, the right moment to make his move. Uh, floor is spread out. Go, you know, dribbles towards the middle of the floor from the left. The quick crossover. He knows Byron Russell is, like you mentioned, and and in the previous episode that Byron Russell plays on his toes. So if you get some, if you get Byron Russell to come in one direction, he you know he basically got him. So goes hard to his right. Quick crossover. A little push off. Uh, the push off thing is I don't think it made much of a difference. I think it was. I don't think if you watch it closely, it doesn't look like he even puts a lot of pressure on his hand to really push him. It might have like, you know, maybe give him a little slight edge, but that's just the, again, that's just Jordan knowing, um, you know, just knowing what to do and knowing, you know, being the veteran, savvy veteran that he is and, and uh, having the mental there and uh, quick crossover. Brian Russell falls over wide open shot. Swish, perfect pose. It's you know, storybook, Hollywood type of type of ending right there. Um, and and yeah, this one of the earliest memories I remember that shot when I was like a little kid. I was like seven years old, so at that time I was able to, you know, remember those moments there. So uh, yeah, I, I actually remember that shot watching it as a little kid so um just amazing just an amazing moment <clears throat> and um yeah one of the one of the most famous shots ever for sure it's it's up there is one of the most iconic images not just in nba history but in sports history you know i um i heard the analogies like a good analogy I heard it with with Jordan in that in that series, and why a lot of people say this is Jordan's best game, and not because he played the best. He didn't shoot that well. He was like fifteen at thirty five. Um, you know, he he didn't have his legs. He didn't play that well, actually. But it's people's favorite game because, again, it goes back to everything that we know about him at that time. Is you know his his guy that. She just finds a way. The analogy is kind of like how when Muhammad Ali fought George uh, George Foreman in Zaire, and uh, you know by that point in time, Foreman was a young, younger, you know, stronger, faster, better fighter. Um, from a physicality standpoint, right, he was uh, faster, bigger, stronger, but Ali still had the smarts and the mental toughness and. And the skill to outbox you, and in that fight, you know Muhammad Ali is waiting for his moment, and just like how Jordan was waiting waiting for his moment in this game, where he was he knew he was tired, he was exhausted, but he was saving any little bit of energy he can to to really to really use it to really need it, and and just he was yeah it was kind of like Muhammad Ali in that fight against Foreman, where you know he's. He's Ali's getting a foreman tired until he finally knocks him out. That's how Jordan was in this game. So it's like a perfect analogy because um, that's what people have been saying that like Jordan's that figure where it's like the Mount Rushmore of sport figures. You know, it's like Jordan, Muhammad Ali, um, Tiger Woods, people put right there and and uh, like maybe Jackie Robinson or Babe Ruth. I don't know, just these iconic sport figures that larger that are larger than life, right? So, um, just an amazing moment, and it's a great game to watch. So, I definitely recommend for everybody to watch that whole game. It's on YouTube. Uh, I think ESPN is gonna air it too. Um, game six of the '98 NBA Finals is is a it's a great watch, and I think to this day, it's still the highest televised. NBA Finals game ever, the most viewed NBA Finals game ever. So, um, classic, classic game, classic moment. And yeah, we get to the end of it. That's that's the sixth ring. They they finish it. They completed it. The last dance. And uh, yeah, we you know we see how it just breaks up. It, it ends. Um, 
apparently Jerry Reinstorf offers Phil Jackson a one-year deal to come back. Uh, and Phil Jackson denies, or not even denied that he offered him the deal, but he rejects the deal. Uh, and it's kind of at that point, you know, at first it was kind of like a twist, like, oh shit, you know, you know, Phil Jackson was actually the person that, you know, didn't want to continue this and, and, uh, it was his fault, right? Because he was offered to come back and Michael Jordan would have came back if Phil did. So, you know, it really is Phil Jackson's fault, right? I get how you can kind of say that, but at that point, you know, it had been all year. You had all these chances. Jerry Reinstorf from the from the very beginning, from the beginning of the season, could have could have told Phil Jackson at the beginning of the season, back when Jerry Krauts was still saying, "You can go eight to and no, and you're not coming back." At that point in time, Jerry Reinstorf could have stepped in a long time ago and said, "You know what? You know, at the beginning of the year, before they won that sixth championship, before that season started." Jerry Reinstorf could have been like, you know, we we feel like we can win not just this year, but the next year. You know, what if we, instead of offering Phil Jackson a one-year deal, I'm going to offer you a two- or three-year deal. Or, you know, been, he could have been out front from the beginning and he looked like he he just offered it to not seem like the bad guy. He offered Phil Jackson a deal to not, to not seem like the bad guy. Because regardless, it looks like he, even if Phil Jackson came back, he was going to rebuild anyways. That was already decided that they were going to rebuild. Um, it looks like he would have rebuilt it with Phil Jackson and Michael Jordan and then kind of put all these pieces around him and with a fresh new cast. And I don't, I don't know. I don't... <clears throat> I just don't see... I don't see how that would have worked at, at, by that point in time. Pippen needed his money. He, he deserved that. He deserved a big contract. So I don't know how, I don't know if Pippen would have came back. Even if, even if Jordan did, I just don't know if Pippen would have come, would have came back on a one year deal, especially uh, he wanted financial um, commitment and like a financial, um, or, you know, he, he needed a long contract because he wanted that stability, the financial stability. Um, and I don't know. I just don't, I don't know if all these other players would have came back for one or more year if, uh, if Jordan wanted them to, uh, most likely they would have had to at least retool. Um, I do think they could have won in 99 if, if they brought back at least the main guy and main cast, with, you know, with Pippen and Rodman and, and Jordan and Phil, but they definitely would have needed to retool around them, and and for Ryan Storff to, at the end of the season, offer Phil Jackson a, a one-year deal to come back, that's the writings have already been on the wall. Like you kind of wasted your, you missed your opportunity. At this point, it's kind of like, um, a backhanded off offer. I don't know. So I understand it. I understand how Phil can take some blame as well for for the breakup of that dynasty by not wanting to come back. Um, but also, if Ryan Storff would have handled that situation from the beginning the right way, then uh, it could have been way different and, you know, Phil might have come back, you know, if he would have wanted him back from the beginning. So, yeah, it, it still hurts Jordan. You can still see it on his face. You know, you can still see how he talks about it. How, how he's looks like he's never got over that that he felt he could have won a seventh ring. They could have won seven championships, and that's something that still eats at him every day. Uh, by the looks of it, uh, but overall, man, great documentary, uh, classic, instant classic. I do think it's gonna win awards um just that final moment too of jordan kind of licking off in the sunset with a cigar in his hand yeah. uh looking like thanos and in, in uh in affinity war so just a boss man jordan this documentary really established jordan again as i mean he really was he, he already was considered the goat by many people but i think um even more people are gonna look at him that way uh the younger people in general are gonna be able to see this story and and kind of get a 
a idea for how Jordan was as a player. People that never got to see him play, so they're probably their perspective is going to change. If they're starting to think that LeBron was a go or whoever it may have been, I think uh, I think those younger some of those younger people are going to switch over to Jordan and and uh, his claim at that being the best player ever is only going to grow because of this documentary. Uh, and that's for years to come because uh, young people that are kids now that are, you know, like five, six year old kids now are be, are going to be able to watch this documentary, you know, when they're a little bit older and, and see all over again, what made Jordan the best. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's, it was great. Sucks that it's over now. Now we still don't have our sports yet. So, this was a nice five weeks of, of looking forward to something every week. Um, but the good news is that it seems like we're getting closer to possibly having the NBA back and baseball back. So that's something for a different podcast. But um, I really enjoyed this this last five weeks watching this. Looking forward to, looking forward to it every Sunday night. And I don't know, maybe we'll get a bonus episode. I know there's a lot of bonus footage, stuff that didn't make the final cut. So hopefully we get to see some of that. Um, that, that stuff at some point. So yeah, I'm gonna wrap it up with this, this segment here. I'll be back in a second here to, to, um, do my top 10 power forwards of all time, uh, rankings. All right. So my top 10 power forwards of all time, continuing my series here of the top 10 players per position in the NBA. Power forwards, uh, not not a lot of difficulty. Uh, the my the the people that made it was pretty easy for me to pick who was gonna make it. But my um the way the way I ranked them, I had to think about for uh, for a little bit of time because it's so especially at the top. Like the top five is is really hard to at least for me. You know, there's a lot of opinion. You can go a lot of ways with the top five uh, par fours of all time. A lot of different directions. And you can make an opinion. I mean, you can make the argument that any one person in the top five can be argued for number one, you know. Uh, so when I get there, I'll, I'll go over my decision to rank the, the top five how I did. Uh, but the names the names weren't to fill up the list wasn't too hard to get to. Um uh, to get at it was actually pretty pretty easy. I had a lot of the a lot of the probably like the first seven or eight names came to me right away when I first started thinking about the list and then I had to think about how to rank those and then I had to do um some research to fill out the last couple spots and who I wanted in there or not. But it wasn't too hard to decide who I wanted in there. Um at number the soul star at number ten uh, to start it off here, I got uh, the worm, Dennis Rodman. <clears throat> uh, yeah, Rodman at number 10. Well, we obviously see a lot, saw a lot of him in the documentary. Um, oh, that's something I also forgot to talk about in the in the, um, in the documentary that they showed. Rodman going to, going to go wrestle uh, with Hulk Hogan, NWO, and... And WCW in the middle of the NBA Finals, like, right in between games. Fucking hilarious, man. Like, Rodman is, like, one of a kind. It's just so funny. Like, imagine somebody wrestling, like, in WrestleMania, like, right in between the NBA Finals or something. Like, imagine if, like, and, and like, a key player, too. Imagine if, like, I don't know, see who was in the Finals last, like, the Raptors. And uh, imagine if, like, Pascal Siakam want to go wrestle and... Uh, in between games three and four of the finals, I don't know. <laughs> like it's just so funny. Uh, but yeah, Raman at ten, five-time champion, two-time defensive player of the year, one of the greatest defensive players of all time. Um, led the league in rebounds almost his whole career. Um, yeah, he's one of the best best role players ever, Hall of Famer. Um, one thing, the reason I didn't, I couldn't put him higher. It's he's definitely one of the the most famous and impactful players when he was on the floor, but uh, no offense. He didn't give you much offensively, and I know I know part of it's because he didn't. That wasn't his role. That wasn't what he wanted to do. 
he didn't try to do. I think I do think Rodman could have been a little bit of a better scorer if he wanted to. He did have you know a couple of years earlier on with uh, Detroit where he averaged like ten points, eleven points a game. But um, but yeah, he you know the offense one dimensional one dimensional player, right? So so uh, that's why I have him at number ten. Everybody at everybody else ahead of him um, were so much better offensively. Yeah. So, uh, Rodman at 10, number 9. Uh, Paul Gasol, very underrated player. One of the most underrated players and underappreciated players of all time. Uh, Gasol, we all know, two-time champion with the Lakers. Uh, winning two rings with Kobe. Um, you can make the argument that he was the best player in that 2010 finals, especially in Game 7. I mean, I wouldn't... I mean... I wouldn't say he, you know, I still say Kobe was the best player in that series, but and I've heard some people say that Gasol should have won or he could have won Finals MVP at least, and I do think there's a small argument there because um, he was great in that 2010 Finals. Uh, Kobe doesn't get those two championships without Paul Gasol. Just a great all-around player, man. Um, six-time All-Star, four-times All-NBA, uh, was a Rookie of the Year, two-time champ. <clears throat> uh, just did everything well. Can uh, hit the mid range. Was really good in the post. Has such great, great hands. Great footwork. Um, was a great passer. Underrated defensively. People think Gasol's just like just soft, but Gasol. He was a good defender. He was solid. He blocked shots. He. Uh, yeah, I think. You know, must be Kobe helped him toughen him up, and he became a better defender uh, once he got to the Lakers. And uh, and which is a great all-around player and and he's uh, underappreciated, underappreciated uh, for sure. And first ballot Hall of Famer, he will he will get his jersey retired with the Lakers. So I can't wait for that day. He's gonna deserve, and he really deserves it. So uh, the this big Spaniard, Paul Gasol, number nine, uh, number eight. I had Alvin Hayes here. So Alvin Hayes was somebody that obviously I didn't watch was before my time. <clears throat> but uh, I had to give him respect. Had a great career. Um, first overall pick, 1968. Uh, he actually led. Uh, he was a scoring champion as a rookie. 28.4 points per game as a rookie. Really impressive. Uh, 24, 28.4 points, 17 rebounds a game as a rookie. Uh, he for his career, he he was a 2010 guy. He for his career was actually more than 2010. He was. 21 points, 12 and a half rebounds for his career, which is really, really impressive. Led the league in rebounding twice. Uh, that had a, led the league in scoring his rookie year, scoring title. Um, yeah, it was was for the first about 11 years of his career was uh, like a 20 point, 20 plus point, you know, 12 rebound guy, 12 plus rebound guy. He had he had a year in '74 where he Average 18 rebounds a game, so just great player. And once he started counting blocks, because when he first came into the league, they didn't count blocks yet until he came into the league in '68. They didn't count blocks until '73. So, so it wasn't until five years later when he started counting blocks. And when they did, he he averaged three blocks a game that first year. They started counting it as a stat. And so, who knows how much he averaged before then, or how much he could have? Uh, he averaged two blocks a game for his career. Is a champion, does have a ring. Um, was on the um, the Sonics team in '78. Not the Sonics, sorry, not the Sonics team, the uh, Bullets team that uh, won a championship and in '78. Uh, the Sonics won in '79, so um, just a year off there. And uh, it was him? It was him and Wes Unsell that were the were the uh, the stars of that that team. So it was a superstar on a championship team, and. You can't ignore you can't ignore the numbers. You, you can't ignore the numbers he put up for sure, and uh, he deserves a place on this list. Though, Alvin Hayes at number number eight, number seven, one of the players I hate the most, but gotta be objective. Gotta you know rank them how how great these players were. So can't be a hater. And I uh, got Kevin McHale at number seven. Uh, Boston Celtic Kevin McHale is one of the one of those guys that, as a Laker fan, just pisses you off, right? One of those white boys that piss you off. 
Um, great player, though. Great player. I'm not going to lie. Mikel, I've seen enough of, uh, again, before my time, but I've seen enough of highlights and games in the 80s, Lakers-Celtics games where um, he was just really skilled in his footwork. He was kind of like a, a little bit like a Paul Gasol of the 80s, you know, not, a little bit like that because he had that, that footwork in the post and he wasn't like a big overpowering guy. Um, but he had the, he had the footwork, he had the, the mid range shot can finish with either hand, incredibly efficient, incredibly efficient player, get uh, really good passer as well from the, from the forward position. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he played this role too, cause in the beginning, you know, he was like a six man for those Celtics teams early on. And then he became a starter like halfway through his career. So he had to play his role, be that, be that six man on a, a loaded team. Um, but, uh, he played his role well and, and, uh, and became a three-time champion and eight, about 18 points a game for his career, hall of fame, seven time all-star, six time all defense. Um, and two times six men of the year, uh, for Kevin McHale. So one of the most skilled players of his era, and and I gotta gotta give him his respect. He was incredibly efficient. I want to look at that. Led the league in field goal percentage twice. Um, shot fifty five percent for his career. So just incredibly skilled, skilled all around player. Uh, so yeah, Kevin McHale, uh, one of the the hate, hated Boston Celtics. Kind of how like my the last time when I did the top ten small fours and. You know, I had to put Pierce on there, and that was hard for me to put. A little bit, same thing with Kevin McHale, but got to give him his his due, his respect. So I've got him at number seven. Number six, one of the old timers, uh, one of the great players from his era, Bob Pettit. Um, yeah, one of the great players from the the '60s played in the Bill Russell era, uh, so he didn't get to win a lot of championships because of that. But he did beat Bill Russell once, so that enough is is enough to put him in the top ten. You know, being one of the few, one of the only players basically to beat the Celtics during that run in the in the finals, and he did it once. So yeah, he was a champion in '58 with the with the Hawks uh, when they were in St. Louis at that time. Uh, was a great scorer in his time, led the league in scoring twice. Uh, 26.4 points per game for his career, a uh, really high number, uh, 16.2 rebounds for his career. And, uh, yeah, it was, it, you know, he was one, just one of the all-time greats from that era that that uh, still should, you know, get the respect today. Uh, it was, you know, like, of course, Bill Russell and the Celtics, but then, uh, you know, after that, that Elgin, it was Elgin Baylor and Jerry West and, and Bob Pettit was, like, the other guy that, from that that 60s decade that were just all-time great players so yeah hall of famer 10 uh, 11 time all-star four all-star mvps which is tied for the most all-time with kobe um has two mvps and 11 time all nba player uh, one of the great scorers of all time and uh yeah he deserves a spot on this list for sure uh that was number six so top five top five here this is where it starts to get harder with the with the rankings. Um, at number five, I have Carl Malone. Now Malone could have gone anywhere. I was, I was really thinking he could have gone anywhere from two to five for me. And when I got down to the top five, I just started thinking of who, I guess who. I thought was the better best player at their peak and and just who who I would have wanted more you know Malone was great we all know Malone is a he's the second all-time leading scorer in NBA history um incredibly durable player who never got hurt and that's the reason why he scored 36 over 36,000 points and the second all-time in scoring because he's just a rock hard like durable dude and strong dude, right? Um, play 82 games every single year. Great scorer, probably the greatest scoring power forward of all time. Um, 
But uh, I got him at five. I got him at five. Part of it's because he never won a championship. Um, and then the other part of it is, especially like once I was watching those two finals in 97 and 98, I watched a couple of those games. Malone just didn't. I know he was a little older by then, so he was a little bit past his prime. But he was the MVP in '97, you know. And I was watching, I was like, I was watching the flu game and and some other games in that series, and and he was a little bit past his prime athletically, but he was still considered, you know, a top five player in the NBA at that time. And I don't know, it just didn't, he didn't impress me as much as I thought he would. Um, I know he's, you know, he was one of the greatest mid-range shooters for the power forward position. Uh, great in the post, great. He had a great fadeaway from that part of Ford's spot. Um, but again, you know, him and John Stockton kind of go hand to hand. So, how much, you know, if, if Carmelo was on a team where he didn't have John Stockton, how good would he have been? Really? How you know is he, is he putting up the same scoring numbers? I don't know. And uh, and I just thought he wasn't a, a th- the other thing that I think hurts him here is. Is he wasn't that cl- uh, clutch player to me. He wasn't very clutch. He wasn't in those big moments, you know, getting the ball stolen from Jordan. And it just seems like he didn't come through in those big moments. And um, um, I just, yeah, he's great player. Um, all-time great, of course. But Malone, I just, I got him at five. I'll take the other four people ahead of him a little, you know, over him. So. Um, at number four, I put Dirk, Dirk Nowitzki, number four. Um, yeah, we'll put places Dirk just ahead of Malone, even though, you know, Malone has like the individual accolades. Uh, Dirk has a, uh, a championship. He beat the big three heat. Uh, I was contemplating putting Dirk higher. I mean, that, Dirk's another person where, um, I thought about at number, number two, um, but, you know, number four for me is where I ended up putting him. One of the great shooters, big man shooters of all time. Um, has an MVP. Um, was, yeah, just just one of the great scorers of all time. 30,000 career points. All-NBA player. Had that championship. So that places him ahead of Malone for me. And, uh, and the one thing, the one thing that I couldn't... The reason why I didn't put him a little bit higher is because he wasn't much of a defensive player. He wasn't a great defender. Um, and he wasn't like a really great rebounder for his size either. So, um, a great shooter, amazing shooter, amazing scorer. Uh, but he, uh, there's, yeah, he, the defense and then, and, uh, kind of the other skills that, I doubt other other players have a little bit better skills, right? So like Charles Barkley at number three, Chuck. Um, I I I would take even though Chuck never won a championship. I don't blame him for not winning a championship. He took he took uh, the Suns to the final of the '93, pushed Jordan to six games. He was great in that series. He didn't you know he was. I would take a peak Charles Barkley over a peak Carmelone. You know, Carmelo uh, had the the better careers from a statistical standpoint because Carmelo played longer. He was more durable than Barkley, took care of his body more than Barkley, you know, and, that, and that's the reason why, you know, that's a great, that's Malone's greatest asset that you can count on him, and, you know, every night, you know, cause you know, he's going to show up, you know, he was going to play hard, you know, he wasn't going to get hurt, but I would take a peak Barkley over a peak uh, Malone. Uh, Barkley, man, he can do it all. He, he was he was a good shooter. He can kill you in the post. He was a great rebounder. He was a, a great passer too, uh, underrated passer. And I just think you know, at his peak, I I, I take Barkley um, um, over Malone and Dirk. It was close with Dirk though. It was, it was really close with Dirk, um, but uh, Barkley just underrated and he. He was great, you know. We just see him as a fat guy on TNT, always talking shit with Shaq now, and uh, we kind of forget how great of a player he was. But let me run down his accolades real quick: Hall of Famer, eleven-time All-Star. I was a rebounding, led the league in rebounding one year, eleven-time All-NBA, was an MVP in '93, and uh, had a great career. Great career, twenty-two and and twelve for his career is pretty great stats there. So. 
the the Chuckster, Sir Charles, Sir Charles, a round mound to rebound, number three. Uh, number two, KG, Kevin Garnett, KG. So, yeah, I think, I think KG was such a great all around player. Um, he can, he, too, when he was in his prime in, in Minnesota, he was fucking good, man. Um, uh, I'm just thinking about like a younger KG and I, I didn't like him, of course, when he became a Celtic and, and that's when, I, you know, started hating on him. But even, even when he was a Celtic, I didn't really see him. He didn't, I didn't see him as a true Celtic the same way I saw like Paul Pierce, um, because, you know, he, he wasn't, he, he was a Timberwolf, so. So I didn't really hate him that much when he became a Celtic, but uh, he was he was just a great all-around player. I, he did get that championship, of course. Um, I think what hurts him a little bit is and why you can make the argument to put somebody else ahead of him. Like maybe you can you can argue putting Dirk Nowitzki ahead of him or or Malone or Chuck, whatever, however you want to rank it. But um, for me, KG was just a better all-around player, a better two-way player. He was he won a defensive player of the year. So that's something that that uh nobody else on this top ten list can say other than uh, De- Dennis Rodman. Um and uh was a great passer. He had years where he averaged five assists a game, led the league in rebounding four years. Um I always thought that he could even be a better scorer. He was kinda too unselfish with the when he was a T Wolf, I always felt like he should have shot more um, because he was a really solid, great shooter, especially from mid range. Right, he he, sh- he shot the ball so well, could block shots, got steals. He was a great all around player, and uh, was so was so efficient too as well. So um, I think I think what he lacked with the T Wolves. I mean, first of all, I don't blame him for not winning with the T Wolves. Because he was going up against uh, Shaq and Kobe Lakers every year. He was going against Tim Duncan and, uh, and the Spurs. He was going against uh, the Kings were good during that time with C-Web. C-Web just missed uh, this top 10, uh, by the way. Um, but he, he was going in a tough tough area, a tough conference. The, the Mavericks were up and coming at that time as well. So I don't blame him for, for getting over the hump with Minnesota. I do feel like there was times where he, he would kind of like that moment being that guy, you know, to take that last shot or whatever it may be, be that, that dude to take over the top. At times, he didn't have that early on, but he definitely, like, became that leader for Boston uh, by the time he got to Boston. Um, and and I think, yeah, I just think he was just a great all-around player. And, and uh, peak Kevin Garnett, I think, is better than peak Charles Barkley, Dirk Malone, Dirk Malone, Dirk Nowitzki, and Carmelo Malone, so... Uh, KG at number two, uh, number one of course uh, Tim Duncan, Timmy, Timmy Duncan, um, five-time champion, one of the top ten best players of all time, uh, three-time Finals MVP, one of the few guys that that actually beat Shaq and Kobe in the middle of their primes in that dynasty, got past them in 03. Um and yeah, I mean. Not much else to say about Tim Duncan. Uh, hands down, the greatest power forward of all time. Uh, did two way player, multiple time. Probably could have won a defensive player of the year award at some point. And just never, never won one. But was all defensive fifteen times. He was on the all defensive team, so it's that's mad impressive. So, one of the great, great uh, players. Fundamentals. Uh, Mister Fundamental was his nickname. Had all the moves. Uh, and, uh, yeah, Tim Duncan, number, number one, pretty easy choice there. So that was my top 10 power forwards of all time. Let's recap it. Number 10, Dennis Rodman, number nine, Paco Sola, number eight, Alvin Hayes, number seven, Kevin McCall, number six, Bob Pettit, number five, Carl Malone, four, Dirk Nowitzki, three, Charles Barkley, two, Kevin Garnett, number one, Tim Duncan. So my top 10 i'll post this list on uh our our instagram page on creative collision also before before i end this any questions you guys may have um anything you want to ask us or uh, you know we might do like maybe a q a 
at some point, but feel free to email us at creativecollision09 at gmail.com um, and send us your questions. And maybe we'll do a Q&A. Uh, me and Will will do a Q&A one day. So um, send us any questions there. Follow us on social media at Creative Collision. Uh, basically, all our social media handles are at Creative Collision. Um, and that's uh, our YouTube. We've been posting a lot of videos on there. So uh, if you guys want to give us a follow on YouTube as well, we've been doing a lot more videos and just just doing more other than just the audio stuff. So uh, find us on YouTube as well at Creative Collision. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll catch you on the next one. Have a good day. Enjoy yourselves. Peace.